Yeah, you can. Voice, you can send the chazan to here. Here, can't you? This. We're going to begin in just one moment as our guest arrives. Welcome to Sinai Temple. Again, welcome to Sinai Temple for this very special evening, the two-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords with the Honorable Jason Greenblatt. We're going to begin this program by recognizing the unbreakable bond between the United States and Israel. We ask you to please rise as Cantor Feldman and our choir and organist, choir director and organist, Mr. Ariel Cohen, leads us in the national anthems of the United States and Israel. Oh, she, uh, 
Thank you to Cantor Marcus Feldman. If you like that, there's more to come. It's called Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Please join us. <laughs> we want to thank our partners this evening for making this not just program possible, but true educational experience of celebrating the Abrahamic Accords. I want to list them in alphabetical order. The Ecumenical and Interreligious Office of the Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles, the Iranian American Jewish Federation, Jewish National Fund, Stand With Us, Temple Shalom of Greenwich, Connecticut, who is watching online with us this evening, the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, the UCLA Eunice and Sarai Nazarian Center for Israel Studies, JBS, the Jewish Broadcast Service, cable TV station, and the Consul General of Israel of the Pacific Southwest. We want to thank you. And tonight's event is a partnership between the Sinai Temple Israel Center and also the Simon Wiesenthal Center. We thank you as well. <laughs> Begin our program, we are honored to have the Consul General of the State of Israel here with us, Dr. Hillel Newman, who will give us opening remarks. Dr. Newman. Shalom, everybody. Good evening. Erev Tov. Um, it's lovely to see an event around the uh, Abraham Accords, and I'd like to open with, of course, recognitions. Um, first and foremost, to our hosts, Rabbi Wolpe, I don't think he's here right now, but Rabbi Erez Sherman, thank you so much for organizing this event, and the Israel Center of, of uh, Sinai Temple. Uh, the Honorable Jason Greenblatt, and of course, Rabbi May from the Simon Wiesenthal Center and all the other partners for this event. Uh, dear friends, it's, we're marking two years to the Abraham Accords. And I would dare to say that it's one of the most significant events of our era. It's ushering in a new era in the Middle East. As we speak, the foreign minister of UAE is now in Israel, Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al Nahyan, and you get goose pimples from seeing the pictures of him visiting Yad Vashem today. The flag, since the signing of the Abraham Accords, significant things have taken place. More than 500,000 Israelis have visited UAE and Bahrain. 34 agreements have been signed between Israel and UAE. 22 agreements have been signed between Israel and Bahrain. On topics ranging from health, water, agriculture, innovation, tourism, and even space. We are even talking about developing a security alliance. Who would have believed two years ago or three years ago that Israel could talk together with UAE, Bahrain, and other countries of the region about a security alliance together? I would like to add my insight to this and just say that I believe that the Abraham Accords have broken two important misconceptions. First being the misconception that we cannot move forward regionally without fully resolving the differences with the Palestinians. Well, this has been proven incorrect. 
Fortunately, there were global leaders who even stated that this is an impossibility. Second thing is the misconception that religious and ethnic affiliation is stronger than ideological similarities. We have proven that the conflict today is not between Jews and Muslims, between Christians and Muslims, but between moderates and radicals. And Muslims and Jews can stand together in the same camp against radicals. I personally visited UAE in 2019 together with the Foreign Minister of Israel at the time, Israel Katz, and witnessed firsthand the diplomatic efforts. And the concerns that were raised by UAE were not with Israel. They had no doubts about their intent to move forward. Their concerns were more in relation to their own brothers, the Arab world and the Muslim world. Make no mistake, the Abraham Accords are a result of tremendous diplomatic efforts, both of Israel and the USA. And for this, we also extend our deep gratitude to Greenblatt, Jason Greenblatt, for spearheading these efforts. Lastly, I'd like to conclude with one important lesson. And the lesson that I draw from the Abraham Accords is that the greatest obstacle to peace has always been and continues to be the rejection of Israel. Anyone who accepts Israel, comes to terms with our existence, will immediately find our hand extended in peace and friendship as it has been since the reestablishment of Israel in 1948. The same goes for the Palestinians in the entire Arab and Muslim world. Thank you for inviting me to partake in this important event, and I wish you all health and Shana Tuba. Thank you. To introduce our distinguished speaker this evening, we call upon our distinguished president of Sinai Temple, Anna Tenenblatt. Good evening, and welcome to Sinai Temple. It's my privilege as president to introduce our speaker tonight, the Honorable Jason Greenblatt. Jason Green Greenblatt is a diplomat, a lawyer, and a commentator who served as assistant to the president and White House Special Envoy to the Middle East in the Trump administration. In this role, Jason served as one of the chief architects of the Peace to Prosperity Plan between Israel and the Palestinians and was one of the key players in laying the foundation for the Abraham Accords. He's the host of the Diplomat podcast with Newsweek and author of the new book, In the Path of Abraham. Jason remains involved in working towards peace and prosperity throughout the Middle East region, re-educating people about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and focusing on what he calls the Middle East 2.0 by building economic bridges between Israel and its Arab neighbors. We hope you'll join us for the second part of this series on Monday night. But for right now, I would introduce Rabbi Sherman and Jason Greenblatt. Thank you. So again, thank you for coming. I'm Rabbi Ara Sherman, Sinai Temple, the Honorable Jason Greenblatt. Not the first time at Sinai Temple, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. Um, but I just want to speak about how the evening will go. We'll be in conversation about the Abraham Accords, about his book, In the Path of Abraham. If you don't have a copy, please purchase outside after. I'll have a chance to sign it. 
And if you have a question, we're going to ask the, uh, my colleague Gary Feynman in the back. Um, he has note cards, and you can write your question on the note cards right on the table back there. Submit them to Gary, and then we'll sift through them to make sure we have an opportunity to answer questions as well. So thank you for being here. And you just mentioned to me um, before a beautiful thing. You said, if your tefillin could write a book, they would tell you this. Where have your tefillin been over the last few years, and what has it been like for you and for your tefillin? First of all, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for hosting me, both Simon Temple, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and all of the partners. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, lucky for me, this is not my first time at Sinai Temple. Um, I think I, I just want to start, I might be jumping ahead on your list of questions, with what it means to be an observant Jew, because that sort of ties into the tefillin question. So when President Trump appointed me and Jared Kushner and David Friedman to our roles, the press was less than kind. They basically felt, you know, what do you people, you observant Jews, know anything about the Arabs, anything about making peace? It was really remarkable to see. And I will tell you that the region is a very religious place. They believe in God. They respected me. They respected me for being an observant Jew, whether it was where I needed a place to pray with my tefillin, so to directly answer that part of the question, my tefillin have been in um, Arab homes, homes in Saudi Arabia. Um, probably my weirdest place was uh, a mosque inside one of their country's airports. I had a, my poor rabbi got so many weird questions from me. Am I allowed to pray in this room, which is not a designated prayer room as you might see in America, but a designated mosque, because at the time, and maybe still, in uh, Saudi Arabia, they didn't have uh, a multi-religious prayer room. Um, but they were also in conference rooms in various countries where I know that they were, I was being recorded, every one of my moves was being watched. But I will tell you that they would tell the story that I tell, which is that I was shown respect, my tefillin was shown respect throughout the Arab countries. I was shown respect in their endeavor to feed me as uh, kosher food as they could find. Uh, although my first Friday night in Saudi Arabia was a bit of a sad meal. It was rice cakes and peanut butter, my fault, not theirs. My wife took really great care of me and packed me with food all the time to Washington, but when you go to Saudi Arabia, it's not so simple. Um, but I will also add that the Palestinians themselves were also very respectful of me being uh, kosher, of me being observant. One of my first meetings with Palestinians, they had a giant feast uh, with a lot of their leadership, and the spread looked quite amazing. Apparently, Palestinian food is quite good, but they made sure to bring in some kosher food for me from Israel, and they didn't just bring like a little falafel, they, they brought some good stuff. So um, my experience was just enormously positive, and uh, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that they received me and my tefillin very, very warm and welcome. So I want to take a step back in terms of the English date on the calendar right now, which is just a couple of days after 9-11. 21 years after 9-11, four days after celebrating that 21st uh, anniversary, Taliban is back in Afghanistan. There's an Iran deal back on the table. Maybe take us back to that moment of 9-11 and even thinking back then if something called the Abraham Accord 21 years ago could even be achieved two years ago. The answer is I, no, it never, wouldn't have happened in my wildest dreams. First of all, I happened to have been with President Trump that day. I worked for President Trump for 20 years in the Trump organization. I remember walking up Fifth Avenue that morning 
and I couldn't figure out what was going on. As I was walking a couple of blocks, there were people walking in the other directions, their mouths covered and like in shock. And I turned around, but based on the angle that I was at, because I was hugging the buildings, I didn't know what they were looking at. And then when I inched closer to the curb, I saw plumes of smoke. So I went upstairs, and I actually watched some of it from then Donald Trump's office. And we were, we were frightened. Nobody knew what to expect. Um, and the world has only become, that was a terrible tragedy, but the world has become far more complicated, far more dangerous. And even in 2017, when I entered the White House, I wouldn't have conceived of something like the Abraham Accords. When I went to Jordan for my first diplomatic mission to meet Arab leaders, I met all of the foreign ministers from all the relevant countries. And I remember thinking, you know, how is it possible to have these meetings with these foreign ministers and even some of the leaders and leaving the room thinking that I agreed on virtually 90% of what they said? And these are people that when I used to read the newspapers, whether it was because of 9-11 or anything else that I used to think, were enemies of America, enemies of Israel, uh, enemies of Jews. Um, so much has happened. So many positive things has happened, and we're living in truly historical times. And so what are some of those things that you, of the 90% that you agreed on? I think they tried to be as open and as honest with us once they realized that we were sincere about trying to resolve the longstanding, some say insolvable, I don't believe that, uh, maybe not solvable at the moment, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we started to begin to see these green shoots of what we had heard whispers of, which is that it might, we might have reached a time where the Arabs, some of the Arabs were interested in taking a relationship that was under the table with Israel and bringing it to the surface and perhaps having some sort of diplomatic relationship. Not the kind of diplomatic relationships that you just heard from the Consul General. We didn't dream that big. We just thought that something would happen. And, you know, when I think back to some of the things that I tried to do in 2017 that seemed so big, or even in 2018, we had a conference in Bahrain, an economic conference that Jared Kushner had organized to show the Palestinians that if we achieve peace, what they could look forward to. And we were thrilled that we got Israeli press into Bahrain. We were so excited that we went to uh, the shul in Manama. I didn't even know there was a shul. I was eating dinner, and a journalist, an Israeli journalist, says, Hey, Jason, do you want to join a minion tomorrow morning? I said, where? In the hotel? No, there's a shul. Um, another Tefillin story, I suppose. Uh, I remember calling the Emiratis. Uh, the Israelis asked me to call the Emiratis to see if they could participate in the World Expo. They had already been talking for a long time, but somehow the conversation got stuck, I think, over some security concerns. And I called uh, an Emirati diplomat, and it wasn't even a question. Like, it's not like I had to twist his arm. He said, of course, of course, we're definitely doing it with them. We just have to solve a couple of things. It's definitely, definitely happening. And each one of those just seemed so giant at the time. But now, when you see what's happening with trade, with relationships, with um, delegations visiting, if you haven't seen the video that the Consul General mentioned about Sheikh Abdullah, the foreign minister, visiting Yad Vashem, spending time with President Herzog, watch it. It's really, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's something to behold. There was a Chabad rabbi who got married this week in Abu Dhabi. Watch the video. You'll see Emiratis and Chabad, Chabad next dancing. None of that I would have thought of in 2017. I would have thought possible, and certainly not 20 years ago.
So when you were here last a couple of years ago, it was in Barad Hall. And I remember you sat on the stage with Rabbi Wolfie, and you had a, uh, a, white, a white binder that you basically read from, and it was the Peace to Prosperity Plan. Now, the Peace to Prosperity Plan was for the Palestinians, but tonight we're talking about the Abraham Accords. What was that shift in that moment Then you said, you know what, that first part maybe is not going to work, but changing that model from the inside out, meaning there can only be Arab, pe- Arab peace when we fix the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, instead of saying, you know what, let's work on the outside and maybe the Palestinian-Israeli conflict will be worked on from there. What was that shift or what was that moment then you realized you can go outside in? Well, we never gave up on the Palestinians. They gave up on us. Uh, when President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital, basically he, recon- he respected U.S. law. There's a U.S. law from 1995 that was bipartisan that recognized Jerusalem as the U.S. capital, and the, U- and the embassy, the American embassy, was supposed to be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Many people promised to do it. They ended up signing a national security waiver saying it was... Um, bad for U.S. national security to do it. And I'm not going to criticize them for not following through on their promise. I wasn't in the room. I don't know the intelligence briefings that they got. Maybe their reason for signing the waiver was legitimate. President Trump himself signed a waiver like that and had to be signed every six months. But what happened was after that announcement, the Palestinian leadership, uh, let me just digress for a minute. When I say Palestinian leadership, it's important for everyone to understand there's two Palestinian leaderships. There's the leadership in Ramallah run by President Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, and then there are the terrorist, murderous thugs who vowed to destroy the Jewish state of Israel in Gaza, funded by Iran, controlled by Iran, nothing more than Iranian puppets. Those, the the Gaza Palestinians, or about two million of them, have no real connection to Ramallah. Many of them are good people, They're trapped in a situation that is tragic. Really, all Palestinian lives have been hijacked, but the ones in Gaza have been hijacked worse than others. So the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah had said, because President Trump did that, there's no peace, we're not dealing with President Trump or his team, and they walked away. Of course, understand, we're not the first administration they walked away from. They walked away from every administration prior to us. at the time, I thought, you know, maybe six months or a year later they would come back. They didn't come back through the end of the Trump administration. But that was turning point one. Throughout 2018, as I continued to work, I would get lots of people coming into my office in the White House purporting to be bringing messages from the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah saying, um, figure out a way that you could bring us back to the table. Now, I have to tell you, I don't know that these were legitimate messages from President Abbas, or they were well-meaning people who were trying to put, you know, this process back together. It doesn't really matter. The questions that they would say, or the, the suggestions that they had was, you need to pay President Abbas something so he could come back to the table. So how about, for example, yes, President Trump recognized Jerusalem, but he didn't move the embassy yet because he recognized that in December of 2017, he moved it in May of 2018. So in the interim time, they would say, even though he said he'd move it, don't move it. Nobody's going to pay attention. People say all sorts of things. And, you know, that will give President Abbas the ability to come back to the table. I said to that suggestion, I mean, he promised it. He meant it. It's the right thing to do. It's U.S. law. We don't operate like that. Then they came up with other ideas uh, such as 
reopening the U.S.-Palestinian mission in Washington, which we had to close about a month before because President Abbas had threatened to bring Israel to the International Criminal Court. Under U.S. law, that triggered uh, the requirement to close their mission in Washington. I said, oh, it doesn't matter. You don't have to respect U.S. law. President Trump is like a king. He could do whatever he wants. I had to set them straight and say that's not, you know, we, we respect U.S. law. This is the law. If you guys come back to the table and you want to negotiate a peace agreement in good faith, the U.S. law allows us to reopen it. But unless you do that, I can't help you. But I said, the most important thing, President, you could tell President Abbas, the most important thing is that the, the, the expression they use is give him a ladder to climb down the tree that he climbed down. That's a very diplomatic expression. I said, the ladder to climb down the tree is to make the lives of Palestinians better. He has a historic opportunity with a unique situation going on, including among the Arabs, to actually find a solution to this conflict. We were rebuffed. But we continued to develop the plan, and the peace plan ultimately morphed into a very large document that was released in January 2020. And it had in it, they had in attendance the Oman ambassador, the UAE ambassador, and the Bahrain ambassador. It was recognized not only with positive remarks from those countries, but even a country like Saudi Arabia had pretty positive remarks. And at that point, you know, it wasn't the first inkling, but it was uh, now those green shoots really started to grow a little bit more. And we realized more and more that the Palestinians no longer had a veto card over peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors. We didn't know if anything was really going to happen. It's one of those things, you put the puzzle together, and you're missing those last few pieces, and then you find them, and slowly but surely, that last piece clicks into place. But we kept working that way. And all the while, the Palestinians were saying we were wasting our time, and we said, we're here to do our job. We're going to continue working, and we're going to see what happens. And by the way, we're not leaving you behind. You want to come back into the room? You're more than welcome, and we're going to fit you into this process if we can. But if you don't want to be part of the room, and if you want to keep saying these things like, we hope the peace plan is born dead, that's almost an exact quote from the Palestinian prime minister, that's your prerogative. So I want to ask one more question based on what you said about the Palestinian leadership and then something that was asked before about the, not divide, but perhaps the separation between the Palestinian leadership and these beautiful people that you've spoken to on the ground. Um, and I can confirm what you said because in December 2019, I was a mentor on the APAC LaFell Fellowship with future rabbis. We went to Ramallah, we met Saeb Erekat, and when he wouldn't talk to you, I guess he was talking to rabbis in Ramallah. <laughs> um, and he said exactly what you said, that we're not talking to them. But who then do you see in the next, I don't know, five years? Obviously, Saeb Erekat is, has, has passed, uh, passed away. But who do you see coming up that can take that ladder and come back to the tree? So again, putting aside Gaza, because that's a different question. In Ramallah, it's very hard to predict. In fact, I would say you may have a different assessment from the Israel intelligence side. But I would say... <laughs> That'll be off the air. <laughs> I would say that when President Abbas leaves the scene, retires, however, however it happens, I think we're not in for an easy transition. Um, I think there's a lot of people vying for that space. I don't think there's a clear leader. But I want to compare and contrast, let's say, Saber God, who you mentioned, and the many young Palestinians that I encountered, both from Gaza and from the West Bank. And my preferred term for the West Bank is Judea and Samaria, because that's the true historical term. It's the heartland of where Judaism really started. 
um, many people know it as the West Bank. What is a false label, and I want to be, I just want to point that out, is occupied Palestinian territory. It's not a term that should be used because it suggests that Israel is a usurper of land that once belonged to a Palestinian sovereign entity, which is actually not correct. So I encourage you to either use the term Judea and Samaria or, not an offensive or incorrect term, West Bank is fine. Saab Erkad, and he's passed away, I don't want to speak ill of him, he and I were on opposite ends of this conflict. We didn't agree on much, but we got along. But Saab Erkad, when I went to, the del to deliver the news to him that we were closing the Palestinian mission in Washington because of that international criminal court threat by President Abbas, he had been recuperating from a lung transplant. I went to visit him to be Mavakir Cholim uh, to him. And I had dinner with him, maybe lunch I think it was actually with him, his wife, his son who just had a new baby. Uh, again, with the food, they had quite a feast prepared. His wife apparently is a very good cook, but they made sure to have kosher food for me. I don't know how their food was. It smelled good. And I broke the news to him, and he was furious. He, he was very, um, uh, he lost his cool sometimes. And he said to me after I told him that we were closing the office, this was a couple of weeks before we actually recognized Jerusalem, before President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital, he said to me, Jason, if you do that, it's over. There's no peace. You're a failure. You're going to go home a failure. You can't do that. You know, basically demanding at me, yelling at me, shouting at me. And I said to him, respectfully, Saab, I'm going to go home. I'm going to live again with my wife and my kids who I'm separated from other than Shabbat and part of Sunday. I'm going to get my job. You know, I'm going to do my work. Um, I'm going to enjoy my family. You're going to end up losing. Your kids are going to lose. I looked in his grandchild's picture. I said, your grandchild is going to lose. Don't think that we're the same administration that you've had before, where you can threaten and then we're going to say, oh, please, what can we do for you to make sure you stay at the table? Our goal is to keep you at the table to make a realistic peace, a peace that's implementable, a peace that will be good for Israel and good for the Palestinians. Our goal is not to just keep you happy and give you diplomatic wins that do nothing for the Palestinians other than you know, make people sound like they did something. It does nothing for Israel. If anything, it may put Israel in danger. And it certainly does nothing for the United States of America. Let's remember, I work for the United States of America. My salary is paid by the taxpayer. If there's something good for America, we're happy to do it. But if it's just something you want because it makes you look good, that's not our job. He wasn't exactly pleased to hear that. I want to compare that to the young Palestinians. Most of the young Palestinians that I met, as much as they're in favor of many of the, the talking points that the Palestinians have asked for, many of which you've heard of, what they call a two-state solution, maybe you'll ask me about that later, I want to address that later, with all of East Jerusalem as the capital, where the so-called Palestinian refugees, we should touch on that too, um, you know, some of them or all of them get to go into live in Israel, things like that. They don't speak like that. So, for example, after the Jerusalem announcement, many of them said to me, Jason, we're angry with you and President Trump for what President Trump did, but let's figure out a solution to Jerusalem that could work for everybody. That's very different than Saab Erekat and others saying all of East Jerusalem, including what we believe where the two temples stood, the, Holy, uh, the Temple Mount, including the Western Wall, would come under the auspices of a Palestinian state. So I believe there's a dichotomy between the view of many young Palestinians 
and what the Palestinian leadership who controls all of them believe. I don't have a scientific poll. I can't tell you what percentage of Palestinians think like that, but I could tell you that I had experienced many positive meetings with so many Palestinians who are rational, who are reasonable, who want better lives for their families, but who are completely out of control and, and powerless, really, to do something about it. And so then let's leave Israel for a moment, because the thought was, outside of Israel, they're not going to talk to us, meaning U.S., Israel, until you solve that inside. What then was the thought when you're talking to UAE and Qatar and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia? Maybe you can first address Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia, how transformative or historic that was, that what he said there allowed people in those countries to realize this is actually good for us. So if there was one initial turning point that eventually coalesced into the Abraham Accords, I would say it was that trip in May of 2017, President Trump's trip to Saudi Arabia, followed by Israel and then the Vatican. But it was really the trip to Saudi Arabia, where he spoke in front of, I think, 50 or so Muslim and Arab leaders. I remember getting a copy of his speech because part of my job was passing on everything relating to Israel and the Palestinians and many of the Arab countries. And I remember reading it and seeing the word Israel in that speech multiple times. And I thought, that's, again, it seemed amazing then. Now it seems so nothing, right? I'm just seeing how he spoke about Israel. And I gave back the speech to the speechwriter. I said, it's perfect. I have nothing to say. The fact that you mentioned Israel so many times, the fact that President Trump is going to say that is fantastic. And I remember being in the room. It was a huge, beautiful room in a conference center in Riyadh. But um, I remember looking around the room every time President Trump mentioned the word at the leaders, and there was no problem. And when we met with the leadership, whether it was those meetings I had in Jordan or each meeting after that, with the leaders of each of these countries, with their ambassadors, with their foreign ministers, you know, at the beginning, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but at the beginning of these meetings, they would say, Israel, Israel. But after two or three meetings, open, honest dialogue, they understood that we were goal-oriented people. They understood we worked for a president who meant business. They understood, I mean, we made it very clear to them. America has a lot of issues. The White House has a lot of things to do. If you're going to work with us, we're delighted to work with you. We want to stand with you. You're important allies, which were a lot of the themes in President Trump's message. If you don't want to work with us, that's okay, too. We're still going to be allies. We'll still work with you on the issues of the day, your security, our security, anti-terrorism, none of that goes away. We weren't threatening them. But we were clear, we don't want to waste time speaking like diplomats and not getting anywhere. So again, I'm going to exaggerate for effect, but many times diplomatic meetings, no disrespect to a diplomat, many times at diplomatic meetings, you know, you sit down and you're like, oh, hi, you're so handsome. Oh, no, no, you're so handsome. Oh, oh nice tie. How's the weather? A lot of meetings start out that way. We, we had maybe one set of those meetings, and then it was really down to, to business. We were clear, please tell us what you think. We pushed back, I mean, me in particular, because one of my biggest jobs was meeting the leadership there. So if somebody would say to me, I'm sure many of you have heard this in the past, you know, Jason, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the core conflict of the region. So I'd hear that from many of them, and I'd say, no, it's not. They'd be like, what? I said, why, why do you say that? Do you think that if you solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you're going to solve the tragedy of Syria or the tragedy of Yemen? Do you think you're going to resolve terrorism? Do you think the disaster that's Lebanon is going to be fixed? Of course not. Stop saying that. 
And they take a step back, and I say, okay, you're right. And I would press them, and I would say, by the way, why do you say that? And there was only one foreign minister, I can't say which, who actually gave me a fair answer. I mean, it's still wrong, and he knows it's wrong to say, but the answer at least had some semblance of logic. And the logic was, it's, if the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is resolved, it will reduce the tension in the region a region that's so tense, has always been tense, to have one less flame burning is better for everybody. I said, okay, thank you. Honest answer. I appreciate it. I understand it. But then say it like that. And by the way, even if it's true, and I agree with it, that doesn't mean that Israel has to all of a sudden say, okay, so to reduce the temperature, Israel's going to agree to X, Y, and Z. It still means that the Israelis and the Palestinians have to get together in the room and negotiate in good faith a solution that could work realistically, something that's implementable. But just because you want to reduce the temperature, that's not Israel's obligation. And again, you know, just to sort of close out the answer to this question, they were also goal-oriented people. They were interested in solutions. They respected when we pushed back because we pushed back not only respectfully, but clearly and logically. And they're very logical people. So we're in Southern California, we're going to raise the temperature, not cool the temperature, and I wish we had a smart board, we're just going to go around the Middle East and we're going to go to Iran now. Because as somebody asked also earlier to you, was this sort of a friendly deal because the friend of our enemies is our friend, or did these countries really believe that Israel had not just an interest, but actually they could get something out of that as well. And in fact, our sixth graders asked uh, the Honorable Jason Greenblatt today, what did the countries want from Israel, right? Who... who which side was everybody on, and what did they want from each other? So where does Iran fit into this, number one, two years ago? And actually, where does it fit in today when we don't know if tomorrow there will be a deal or not? I'm just going to give a plug to the, to the middle school, by the way, here. Um, I was so impressed. Like, for those of you that have kids or grandkids here, Kolakavod, amazing, amazing kids, polite, amazingly polite, very inquisitive, very smart questions. Um, the Iran deal, no doubt, had a major impact. When we went into the region, without exception, every one of them felt that they had been abandoned by the Obama administration because of the Iran deal. Uh, not just Israel. Israel may have been the most vocal about it, but every one of them understand that the Iran deal put them in the crosshairs. Let's be clear. The Iran deal does three things. One, it gives Iran an absolute path to create nuclear weapons. It didn't end it, and no matter how many times we say those words that we promise Iran will have a nev uh, never have a nuclear weapon, those are promises, and promises are often not kept, either because they're not real or because they can't be kept. I mean, if you look at what's happening with Ukraine, you realize that the world is a dangerous place, and sometimes we want to help, and sometimes we could only help a certain amount. Um, I think President Biden when he's giving the weapons to Ukraine, recognizes that Americans don't want boots on the ground in Ukraine. So the reality is we don't know if we could keep the promise of Iran not having a nuclear weapon. Israel knows that. Saudi Arabia knows that. All the countries know that. So they felt totally in danger of a nuclear weapon. By the way, the Palestinians don't focus on it, but if, God forbid, there's a nuclear weapon threat against Israel, who do you think is right next to Israel? The Palestinians including Hamas, their, their puppets. The second thing is it gave Iran a fortune of money, and it would give Iran, again, a fortune of money. And what do they do with that money? They use it to fund their proxies, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza, 
the Houthi terrorists in Yemen. I'm probably one of the few people on the planet who could say that I was in the line of fire, missile fire, in Tel Aviv and Riyadh. I was in a restaurant in the Israeli Towers when Israel was attacked in May of last year, and I was on a runway in, in, in Riyadh in the airport with my son when we were going to take off for Jeddah, and we were told we had to get off the plane because the Riyadh airport was under attack. Imagine if LAX was under attack, how you would feel. So the region understands the threat that is Iran, the, re the Iranian regime, I should say. The region understands that the Iranian deal is a danger to them, and it was a helpful fact. It's not that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but rather it allowed everybody to finally recognize that um, they were in the same boat together, every one of those countries. I, I, I don't think I used this expression here, I used it earlier tonight. The Abraham Accords have many parents and grandparents. Somebody joked with me that really President Obama is one of those parents. And the answer is a little bit, unwittingly so, but I think because he created the JCPOA, he actually brought the region to think in a different way, to realize that they are stronger together. The Consul General mentioned the security architecture. Um, the ambassador from Bahrain was at the Jerusalem Post Conference. I wasn't there, I was in Miami, but I heard, or it was reported that he spoke about a military security cooperation agreement or a missile security cooperation agreement, I can't remember, to protect the countries themselves. They understand the value. So again, if you have a question, uh, Gary's in the back. If uh, He'll give you a card to write. Um, so I want to make sure that there's time for Q&A. So just raise your hand if you have a question and you can write it on the card back there. Um, great. So we have some questions over here, Gary. He'll pass you a card and you'll write it. Um, I want to talk about two words that actually also deals with Iran, and it's anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Because, of course, you hear from the Iranian regime that, no, they're not anti-Semitic, they're just against the Zionist regime. And it seems like these countries now, with the Abraham Accords, bringing, let's say, the word Zionism to them actually has relieved the pressure or lowered the temperature of anti-Semitism. Can you talk about that in terms of walking around these Arab countries as not even an observant Jew, but just as a Western, as an American, and do those two theories correlate together? I never detected um, this notion of anti-Zionism. Like, they are not, th those that we interacted with, which were the leaders, as well as so many Qataris, Emiratis, Saudis, Bahrainis. I didn't deal with Kuwait, really. Um, Omanis, yes. Uh, I never detected any kind of hatred of Israel. So yes, they're very pro-Palestinian. And yes, many of them could be angry at Israel for how they perceive, wrongly in my view, wrongly factually, I believe, um, how Israel may treat Palestinians. But I think they all recognize at this point, Israel is here to stay. Israel is a very important part of the region. Um, and they're all better off for it. I never detected any anti-Semitism. I mean, I'll share just a couple of quick stories. This is post the White House. I was in, I don't want to say which country because uh, I just shouldn't. I was in a particular country. Uh, I almost got stuck there for Shabbat with my son, which at least I was with my son. I hate when I get stuck there alone. But there was some technical glitch. We were at an airport, and uh, we might have missed our flight. And they were bending over backwards to get us out. And I was trying to figure out why, and then I got a text from the person who was organizing the trip in this country. He said, Jason, I know how much Shabbat means to you, and I know how much you want to be with your family to have your Friday night dinner. We're going to make sure you get on that plane. And they did. 
They don't have to do that if they don't mean it. I wasn't at the White House anymore. I'm just Jason Greenblatt, zero power. Not, you know, I can't give them anything. They feel it in their kishkas. They want the relationship. They believe it. That doesn't mean they're not pro-Palestinian or they don't want a Palestinian state. But they want a new Middle East. They want a new Middle East that's safe, that's secure, that's prosperous. Some people have different ideas of how to get there. Um, they wish that they could sit with Israel to try to convince Israel to help the Palestinians, but they also recognize that the Palestinians are deeply divided. When I push back on them and I say, even if we were to get President Abbas in the room with Bibi Netanyahu, and even if you know, we put down a couple of pieces of paper and we say, what about this? And President Abbas and Bibi Netanyahu at the time would have said, oh my God, you guys, you're geniuses. How did you figure out the answer to the problem that nobody else could do? Does that solve the problem? Of course not. You still have Gaza, you still have Hamas, you still have two million Palestinians who are suffering under Hamas that you can't fold into the deal. They're smart enough to recognize that. So I think that um, there's a lot of teaching to do. Somebody asked a question earlier this evening about teaching about anti-Semitism. Undoubtedly, there are decades of education, miseducation of people in the Arab countries. So let's do our job. You know, the Abraham Accords team, the Trump administration, hopefully now some uh, effort through the Biden administration, they're trying to build on the Abraham Accords, but they could build on only certain aspects of it. You know, the best key to success and to continuing to build on it? All of you. All of you need to become diplomats. Go visit these countries. Learn about these countries. Understand these countries. Hold yourself out as proud Jews. Hold yourselves out as proud Zionists. Hold yourselves out as people seeking to try to achieve peace and relationships. That's how we're going to take it to the next level. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to get some questions from our, uh, I guess since we're in the shul, a congregation, audience, <laughs> family, diplomats. Um, how does it work? In t it seems like it was sort of a shidduch in the Beshert moment in terms of the Israeli government and the American government at that time. Bibi Trump seemed to be pretty friendly. Um, if it wasn't the Bibi administration on there, do you think we would have the Abrahamic Accords on the Israeli side working with the Trump administration? It's hard to answer because I knew Bibi inside and out by the time I left. You know, as compared to the first time I met him when I was so excited and I thought, oh my God, I bet Bibi Netanyahu. And then, you know, you spend like hundreds of hours with him and that first day just seems so silly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the leader's... You know, I, I met Naftali Bennett a few times. I don't really know him. I had an interaction with Yair Lapid. I don't really know him. So it's hard to say, but my gut is telling me that they would have understood the opportunity, they would have seized the opportunity, and they equally would have been able to get there. Um, I think that, yes, the relationship between President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu was very strong, but I can't think, to the degree that I know these other politicians in Israel, I can't think of one of them who might have been in power who would have resisted proceeding down that path. And let's remember, Bibi Netanyahu um, always stood for Israel applying its sovereignty over at least the areas of the peace plan that we proposed, probably more. Uh, that was a mantra of his. Yet he allowed it to be suspended for the Abraham Accords. I think others would have done the same. And suspended, by the way, is an important word. Okay, great questions, just poor penmanship, so we're going to get through these. <laughs>
Egypt and Jordan, this comes from our audience, uh, Egypt and Jordan were the first to make peace with Israel, but it seems to be a bit of a colder peace than the things that we're seeing today, or as you mentioned, weddings of Chabad rabbis in the streets of uh, Morocco, etc. Do you see any way that perhaps those peace treaties are, would be a little warmer like the ones that we're seeing with the Abraham Accords? So each of those countries is different from each other and different from the rest of the countries. Jordan is a challenge. Uh, it's a very high Palestinian population. By some accounts, 70% Palestinian, the Kingdom of Jordan would say otherwise. So it's a much trickier, much more complicated country. What I think has happened uh, is that Israel's relationship with Jordan in, a, in an economic perspective has gotten much better. Uh, you know, from a security perspective, generally it's been very good. There have been some flare-ups, like one, one summer, I don't remember, I think it was summer of 2018, it might have been 2017, where there was a terror attack on the Temple Mount, and the tension with Jordan was very, very high. They were making a lot of demands out of Israel. You know, just to give you an example, and this wasn't Jordan, but to give you an understanding of just how crazy things could be, after this terror attack, I was dispatched to Israel and Jordan, and to Ramallah. But before I was dispatched, my national security team came up to me and said, Jason, you need to tell Bibi Netanyahu to get rid of the magnetometers on the Temple Mount. And I said, they don't have magnetometers on the Temple? I don't understand. Like, I go into a football stadium here. You got to go through a magnetometer. What do you mean there are no magnetometers? Israel put them up because of the terror attack? Okay, that sounds like a brilliant idea. I'm going to tell Bibi Netanyahu to take down something to protect people's lives. Like, that's the psyche. Jordan was very difficult at the time. I mean, I have, I have a lot of respect for King Abdullah. I have a lot of respect for their foreign minister. I know their prime minister well. But they, are, um, they were difficult to deal with then, and they have their own challenges. It's an important ally for America. It's an important friend of America. It's an important partner for Israel, but I don't foresee in the immediate future that um, that relationship will warm to the degree that it has with the UAE. Egypt has different issues. I think that relationship is getting better, is getting stronger. You know, I remember, I think I'm allowed to say this now, there was uh, one of our earliest United Nations General Assembly meetings, must have been in 2017, when President al-Sisi and Bibi Netanyahu actually met there. Uh, and again, that was a big deal. But then you realize, look where the relationship has gone between Israel and Egypt. It's very good, but it's not yet where it needs to be. I think recently uh, they started to resume flights back and forth. I think we should support Egypt. I think we should support Jordan too, by the way. But I think we also need to be careful and do it in a way that's um, beneficial to everybody without raising it to the level that some bad people want to make trouble. There's a great story in the book, by the way, that I know we don't have time right now because I want to get to these questions, but about the real relationship of King Abdullah and you and your son and the, the cars as well. So make sure you buy the book just to read that story as well. Thank you for the plug. Yes. Uh, this is a very important question from uh, somebody who's hungry. Is the kosher Texan style in Teaneck still operating? <laughs> I don't know. That's an I don't know. So those who are in Teaneck, there we go. Um, a little question about Israeli elections coming up, and they're on the horizon. Do you see a coalition constellation that you will be perhaps beneficial for the future of the Accords, and I know there's things going on even day to day about, um, I believe, the Arab Joint List sort of splitting apart and things like that. Um, and what constellation for the future do you think would be the right fit for the Abraham Accords going forward? I'm not an expert in Israeli politics. I, I don't frankly know if anybody's really an expert in Israeli politics. It's quite a system. 
But I, I feel fairly confident that whatever they end up with, whoever the prime minister is, and hopefully they gather a, a good coalition, I think that everybody in Israel understands the many benefits of the Abraham Accords, and I'm not worried for the future of the Abraham Accords, whatever the government of Israel ends up being. By the way, if, we, if there's no question about Jerusalem, before we run out of time, make sure we yes. get this. What are the prospects for an expansion of the Abraham Accords to include places like Oman, Qatar, Tunisia, Kuwait, and, and more? Some say that the people who are competing to sign the Abraham Accords last is Kuwait and Lebanon. Um, I don't know, but I'm not optimistic that Kuwait is, on, is high on the list. Uh, Oman apparently was high on the list. Right now, Oman has a new looter, leader, you know, the Sultan of Oman that we dealt with, who said some remarkable things. I mean, it's a cute story. Jared um, and I and Avi Berkowitz and Brian Hook showed up for a 9 o'clock dinner in Oman with the Sultan. Um, a couple of guys come in. His, his colleagues were sitting, were talking till about 11.30 without the Sultan. Then we go into the room. We meet the Sultan. Much older guy. He actually reminded me of uh, the late Queen Elizabeth. Like, very wise, seen a lot. Very, very balanced and interesting. And the things he said about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount were remarkable. But he's not in power anymore. He passed away. So I don't know the new leadership in Oman. Oman, like some of these countries, including Qatar, um, are in just as dangerous a position, let's say, as Israel when it comes to the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime has not threatened to wipe Oman or Qatar off the map, as it has with Israel, but these countries could be overrun in minutes by Iran, all of them, really, except maybe Saudi Arabia. So I think that we need to respect the fact that their job is to keep as much stability in the region as they can. We need to give them the space and the time to do things in their own way. The question I get the most that wasn't on the list, but I want to address it, is Saudi Arabia. People say, when is Saudi signing? When is Saudi signing? I would like to reformulate that for you if you have these conversations. Let's recognize the many things Saudi Arabia has done. I don't want to say to support the Abraham Accords because I don't know that they've taken the official position that they do. They might have. But when President Trump released the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan in January of 2020, Saudi Arabia issued quite a good statement about it. You should read it. It's really a good statement. Saudi Arabia has made many public statements about um, Israel, not to say they're ready to sign, but they made a lot of public positive statements about Israel needing to be or being a part of the region. When the Abraham Accords were signed, Saudi Arabia opened up air corridors between Israel and Bahrain and Israel and the UAE. And about seven, eight, nine weeks ago, Saudi Arabia opened up their airspace to all flights, including those for Israel. It's a big deal. They have a lot on their plate. They have a lot of, they're in danger just like Israel. They're building all these amazing new projects. They have a laundry list of things to get done in terms of changing their society. The Abraham Accords and Israel are on that list. Where they are on the list, depending on the week, it could vary. But I would say we should encourage them and thank them for when they do these positive things rather than focus on when are they actually going to sign the Abraham Accords. Michael, so the next question, somebody said they celebrated Dubai, or sorry, Pesach in Dubai last year. And is it 2024, next year in Riyadh? As, as our Arab cousins say, inshallah. <laughs> there we go. Um, are Jews of Iran, so we're going to do a little crossfire just because I want to make sure we get through all the questions um, in the right amount of time. And the last question will be about Yerushalayim, uh, Jerusalem. Are Jews of Iran in danger? 
I don't know the answer. I don't know the Iran file as well as I should. Um, I have heard there's a relatively quiet, active community. Uh, I think they're doing as best as they can. I don't know if they're in danger or not. Okay, lots of questions about the Iran nuclear deal. Um, um, what are you doing now to further the Abraham Accords outside of the government? And for the crystal ball, your crystal ball, um, what do you say about Iran's quest for a nuclear bomb? And if that is the case, um, the question was, what do you see Israel perhaps doing? Maybe we're asking the wrong person, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of what I'm doing now, I basically connect Israeli and American companies with countries and companies in the Arab world. The Arab world, in my opinion, is deeply misunderstood by America. Uh, Israel is often misunderstood by America, except those who support Israel. So I spend a lot of time making those connections. Uh, Israelis also often don't understand the Arab countries. You know, at the beginning of the Abraham Accords, no disrespect to our Israeli friend in the front row, but a lot of the Israelis were, you know, they thought that the ATM, you know, the ATM was open, right? Emirates were just going to pour tons and tons and tons of cash into every Israeli startup, even those that didn't make any sense. I think people have figured out that the Emiratis are just as smart as the Israelis, and they do want to invest in Israel, and they want to have a relationship with Israel, but they're going to be smart investors. They're not just going to be throwing all of their wealth into Israel unless it makes a lot of sense with particular companies and people they could trust. The, uh, the psychology is a bit different. Israelis are ready to sign a deal on a napkin yesterday, and the Arabs have a much more thoughtful, long process approach to trying to get to know the people, and I respect that. So a lot of what I do is bridging those gaps, explaining the cultural differences, and building that sort of Middle East 2.0. So Middle East 2.0, there's a question about the college campus. Um, what do we do to train students about anti-Semitism on the college campus, and how can that bring, as we talked about earlier, Abraham Accords within this country? So I think and I, all of us, right, somehow we've done, uh, we haven't done our job. I have now three, po I have six kids, two sons-in-law, so eight kids, of which four, five are post-college. One is in college, and thankfully they've gone to places like Yeshiva University, NYU Stern, Turo, so they have not faced any issues. But I speak to their friends at other schools, and it's a big problem. Somehow we drop the ball. We're not giving these kids the tools that they need to be able to defend Israel in the way that they should. And I'm not saying everybody can. In some of these places, they feel in absolute danger. There was a story this week that the Department of Education is going after the University of Vermont, because the, Israel, the Jewish students there feel absolutely unsafe. That's no yeshiva university, right? Um, we have to stand by those kids, help them, educate them. If you hear the story, reach out to the university. Tell them you won't tolerate it. The same way we write letters to Congress people, the same way we support APAC or whatever the organization of Israel supporting things that we do. We have to give our kids the strength to do it. I don't know that there's, I know there's a lot of different organizations that try. I think we need one umbrella organization that's going to help our kids feel safe, feel educated, and be able to speak back. Sinai Temple Israel Center, how about that? Great idea. A <laughs> um, couple more questions. Um, a couple people are asking about what's been said in the media over the years about um, President Trump having anti-Semitic comments, but then you have this idea of Trump supporting Israel. Maybe you can address that in terms of how you saw it on the front lines. So I'm a guy who's The last question, so if, uh, we're gonna complete the questions there. Thank you. 
I'm a guy who's worked for President Trump for 23 years, 20 years in the private sector, three years in the White House. I deal in fact and real experience, not in sound bites, not in news stories that manipulate him. And I'm not a guy who's going to defend every tweet. But I will tell you that I never experienced, forget anti-Semitism from Trump, the only thing I experienced from President Trump and Don Jr. and Eric Trump and Ivanka Trump way before she was Jewish was support for me being an observant Jew, um, encouragement for me being an observant Jew. Do I have time to tell the Shabbat story, the I love it. story? Yes. So when I was early in my career there, I was working on a very large transaction for Trump worth hundreds of millions of dollars to him. And it was, you know, this time of year, September, October, where I had to be out of the office either for the two or three days. I don't remember if it was one of those years where it was three days, might have been two days, multiple weeks in a row. And I worked as hard as I could. I slept in the office. I tried to get the deal done before the Chagim. I couldn't. I had to go into his office as a young attorney and tell him and say, look, I'm really sorry. The deal has to stop because nobody could pick up the pieces from where I was standing. Like, it's not that I was the smartest guy in the room, but it was my deal. I ran it. I knew all the moving parts. Nobody could take over. And I was afraid. I, it was two doors away. I remember very vividly the walk from my office to his office, a lump in my throat, nervous. What's he going to do? Am I going to be fired? Feeling like I left him down, his family down, my colleagues down. I explained the situation. And he says to me, Jason, go home, go pray, go be with your family. We'll pick up the deal after the holiday. That's the essence of the Donald Trump that I know. just want to tell you one more thing um, to really answer this question. I know you all have seen the Charlottesville video, the very fine people, time and time and time again. I was just on a, Dana Bash from CNN called me two months ago and asked me to be on a documentary that she was doing about anti-Semitism. She wanted the Trump story to be told. So I spent about an hour, an hour and a quarter with her. I think I got 90 seconds in the show. But one of the things that I give her credit for, and I give CNN credit, is I made the point that when they show that Charlottesville clip, the very fine people, they leave out the rest of the clip, which unfortunately is what the media often does. And if you watch the full clip, you will see President Trump clearly saying, I'm not talking, this is not an exact quote, but almost, I'm not talking about the white supremacists and the white nationalists who should be condemned totally. And then he goes on to say something else and then eventually gets to the fine people on both sides. So if you're going to be watching media where you only see the fine people part and then everybody's saying, oh my God, he's such an anti-Semite, but you don't actually see the full statement where he did condemn the terrible anti-Semites, it tends to lead you to believe something that's absolutely not true. Forget about his support for Israel, which is important. Forget about the fact that by canceling the Iran deal, he actually protected millions and millions of Jews plus Arabs in Israel. It is not who he is portrayed to be. Are there anti-Semitic supporters of Donald Trump? Of course. I'm sure there are anti-Semitic supporters of Biden. I don't call Biden an anti-Semite any more than I would call Trump an anti-Semitic just because bad, hateful people support them. You can't blame the person who is uh, being supported for the disgusting behavior of some who support them. So a uh, couple of questions on the two-state solution and either why is continued to be discussed and also maybe you can share the uh, Abbas Shana Tova story as well since we're close to uh, Rosh Hashanah and speaking about how we build personal relationships as well. So two-state solution, Abbas Shana Tova, Jerusalem, Laila Tov. Great. Um, I'll try to be fast. I don't want to get between you and going home. 
uh, two-state solution. I don't use the term. Why? It means so many different things to so many different people. It's a diplomatic phrase that sounds lovely, like to the heart, to the mind. I wish it were true. But does that mean that Israel has to give up its security? Let's remember, Israel is a country that's been attacked relentlessly from the moment of its formation. So if you're telling me that to give the Palestinians peace, Israel has to uproot every Jewish person in Judea and Samaria, every one of those cities and towns and neighborhoods, which, by the way, another vocabulary change, instead of using the word settlements, which has become a pejorative term to suggest that Israel actually stole land from the Palestinians as opposed to its land that is disputed and claimed by two sides, let's call them what they are, cities, towns, and neighborhoods. But if you're telling me that Israel has to uproot everybody there because a Palestinian state shouldn't have a single Jew living there, and that Israel has to hope and pray that, oh, let's remember, the two-state solution includes a demilitarized Palestinian state. Well, in theory, when Israel withdrew from Gaza, Gaza was demilitarized. And what's happened? Do you know the amount of rockets that Hamas has? And they keep having, they keep building. They're incredibly, incredibly um, skilled at building these missiles, right? They will take anything that they get their hands on. They're so smart, and they're able to create these weapons. A demilitarized state is only half the equation. The other half of the equation is Israel has an absolute obligation to protect its citizens, Arab and Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, no religion, whoever, from any threat. And therefore, a two-state solution without the details, and we produced a pretty detailed plan, 60-plus pages, sometimes 80, depending on the font that you printed it, it showed the right way to get to something like that. I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not saying the Israelis were all happy. They weren't. I'm not saying the Palestinians weren't happy. Many weren't, most perhaps. But it's instead of using the phrase two-state solution, use the phrase possible peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Whatever it ends up being, if they get there, God bless them. But let's not focus on a three-word phrase that is completely undefinable. That's just diplomatic speak, and it means nothing. Um, to kind of do Jerusalem, and then we'll close out with President Abbas because it's Rosh Hashanah. I want to explain that there are many, many myths about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but perhaps one of the most pernicious myths has to do with Jerusalem. Uh, how many of you have been to the city of David? Okay, many. Great. Um, you should go back. It's an amazing place. But if you haven't seen the Pilgrimage Road, the Pilgrimage Road is something they discovered some years ago by accident. There was a apparently a sewer break or sewer line break, and they end up finding um, the road that led from the Shiloach pool all the way up to the Temple Mount. And the pilgrims, Jewish and otherwise, would walk that road. So they decided they would inaugurate the pilgrimage road by covering the entrance that had already been open, including many, many feet of it uncovered, with a paper mache or a wall that was slightly more than paper mache. And they gave us all sledgehammers, which is probably where David Friedman got the name of his book. And we whacked into this paper mache wall. You can imagine the press, which went absolutely wild. They were printing pictures of David Friedman and I. David was, is a friend of mine. He was the ambassador. With uh, the flash photography happened to make our eyes red. So it was particularly really good, like we were these devils. And the headlines are more or less saying, Greenblatt and Friedman destroying Arab homes in Silwan. Silwan is the Arab neighborhood adjacent to the city of David. It doesn't, it's not even under the city of David. 
We weren't near Silwan. We weren't knocking into any walls or homes or infrastructure. And it was a paper mache-ish kind of wall. After that, they also started printing articles with Saab Arakat saying, the late Saab Arakat, Greenblatt and Friedman are Judaizing the city of Jerusalem, as if Jerusalem has no Jewish history, which of course we all know is completely fabricated. That's a claim that they make time and time again. I went back to the White House and I said to one of my colleagues at the National Security Council, I gotta ask you a question. I'm here now, I don't know, two, two and a half years. I haven't seen a single paper that says that East Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians. I keep hearing it. Everybody says East Jerusalem will be the capital of a Palestinian state. Sometimes in a, if the person is in a charitable mood, they say a capital in East Jerusalem, which is different than East Jerusalem as the capital. But where is that piece of paper? Enlighten me. So he's shifting in his seat very uncomfortably. This is a guy who knows this file inside and out. He says, let me get back to you. And he never needs to get back to you. He doesn't come see me that day, the next day, two days later. I finally call him. I say, you know, could you come down? So where is it? He said, well, Jason, I got to tell you, there is no piece of paper like that. It's just that somebody said it many, many years ago, and then somebody else said it, and somebody else said it. And now, I'll use the word in a, in a school, it's gospel, right? It is what it is because somebody said it. So I said, okay, well, Nikki's not at the Security Council anymore. She did an amazing job. She had already left. I want to go to the Security Council, and I want to tell the Security Council that they need to stop saying that East Jerusalem is going to be the capital of Palestine because it's just a made-up concept. You speak about it as if it's international law. It's not. Uh, I wouldn't say he was so excited, but I would tell you that he took his direction well. I told him he needed to make, you know, they wrote my speeches for me. I would edit them, and I would put them in my voice, but they gave me the bones of the speech. I said, don't come back to me with like a two. I want you to come back with a six to an eight. I give him credit. They came back with a six or a seven. I made it a 12. We negotiated it down to like a nine, right? But the key sentence to me was, just because the Palestinians aspire to have a capital in East Jerusalem does not mean it's their right. Now, you could imagine how that went over in the Security Council. The German ambassador, absolutely disgusting called me a liar, said I was going rogue, which made me glad that I actually negotiated the speech with the State Department rather than do it on my own. The French were not much better. The UK was fine. We let these lies persist. And eventually, you know, if you talk about college campuses, so you have people saying these things that just aren't true. Uh, that's my Jerusalem story. I know we're almost out of time. I'm going to tell you one last thing about President Abbas. I'm... I don't want to pretend away any of his comments. For example, those of you that tracked this some weeks ago in August, he made a horribly disgusting comment in Berlin when he met the German chancellor about how Israel has perpetrated some, I think he said something like 50, uh, 50 holocausts on the Palestinian people. Just horrific, horrific. Um, his dissertation that he wrote in Russia many, many years ago was disgusting. I wrote about that in my book. So I don't want to excuse the many terrible things that he has said. Um, but I want to show you a side or tell you about a side of President Abbas that you may not know. In 2017, when the Palestinians were still talking to us, we were at the United Nations General Assembly, which is what's happening now in New York. And there was a particularly tough meeting between President Abbas and President Trump, like a really tough, tough meeting. He was very um, irritated, angry, frustrated, President Abbas, that is. And at the end of the meeting, as he was leaving, 
He made sure to seek me out. I was on the other side of the room. He didn't have to say goodbye to me, but he didn't just say goodbye to me. He came up to me, he kissed me on my head, and he wished me a Shana Tova. The most important message I could leave with you tonight, whether it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, the Abraham Accords, or sadly, our own country, which has just become so incredibly divided, divided politically, divided on ideology. Guys, we're in bad shape, let's admit it. If I can travel as an observant Jew through Arab countries, forget the Abraham Accords, a fluke of history under very unique circumstances, very unique leaders. I did this even for three years before the Abraham Accords. If I can be welcomed by Arabs and welcome them, I've had many Palestinians in my home for Shabbat dinner, okay? And we could leave the room friends, but disagreeing respectfully. We hug each other goodbye, even though I know that they don't like my policy and I don't agree with their policy. We may have different narratives, different versions of history. I'm telling you, we could do it here. We could fix our divide here. We have to learn to respect each other. We have to learn to get along with people whose political leanings or ideology we don't agree with. And I'm not talking about the haters, the anti-Semites, the irrational, those that are unwilling to um, at least be deeper thinkers. But um, if President Abbas can come to me and seek me out and wish me a Shana Tova, I think we can all do better. So I'll leave you with that, wishing you all a Shana Tova. We want to thank the Honorable Jason Greenblatt. Make sure you get a copy of the book, In the Path of Abraham, which is found right outside. He'll be uh, signing those books. Please join us on Monday evening at 7 p.m. for the uh, Ambassador Dan Shapiro, Future of the Abraham Accords, Lila Tov, and Shana Tova.